We are back. We like to do obituaries from time to time, the top of our third segment. That would put us right to where we are now, and I think we should talk about the passing of Sabine Mahmoud. She unfortunately was shot to death on the streets of Karachi, Pakistan on April 24th. Sabine Mahmoud was a Pakistani human rights activist and social NGO worker. She was founder and director of the Karachi-based cafe The Second Floor. Mahmoud wanted to challenge injustice and discrimination. Her biggest dream, she said, was to change the world for the better through the internet. She founded Peace Niche, an organization that provides a social platform for public good. Said the Economist in the wake of her shooting, the Pakistani Taliban denied all responsibility. The Inter-Services Intelligence, ICI, promised all possible help to the police. Nawaz Sharif's government ordered the police to find the perpetrators within three days. The police said they were very busy ascertaining a motive. The magazine noted it wasn't hard to spot one. Here in the midst of an anarchic, dysfunctional, crammed, crazy, noisy Karachi was a woman who was even more anarchic, crazy, noisy, and in your face. She was at the heart of every disturbance, from supporting rank outsiders in the local elections to organizing flash protests on social media. She spiced up every organization she belonged to, which was any outfit committed to challenging discrimination or injustice. As one might imagine, abuse and threats came often. She laughed them off. Other dissidents left Karachi, but she loved it too dearly to live anywhere else. We're sad to note the passing of this Pakistani activist who sought so hard to do the right thing in a difficult environment. And we have to ask again in the program, what the hell's the matter with Pakistan? We also want to ask, what the hell's the matter with Dr. Oz? As noted on this program, he got kicked in the ass in a Senate hearing some months ago criticized for using his popular daytime TV show to promote green coffee beans, miracle fat burners, and other bogus weight loss supplements. Last December, a British medical journal study found that about half of Dr. Oz's medical advice is either baseless or flat-out wrong. And as we reported on the show, not too long ago, 10 respected doctors have now sent out an open letter calling for his dismissal as vice chairman of surgery at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons, citing the cardiothoracic surgeon's disdain for science and his relentless opposition to genetically modified food. Now, on the latter one, we have to say, GMOs create a lot of problems. We will continue to cover the evil machinations of Monsanto and others on this program. In some instances, the GMO foods themselves are fine. It's the problem with how the seeds are being marketed, farmers are being coerced, and how they're creating things like Roundup ready seeds that promise down the road to make the treatment of with herbicides a much bigger problem than it is now. So we can't condemn him for that. And I actually have to find myself listening to some of the defenses of Dr. Oz, which have a bit of merit to it. Writing in thinkprogressive.org, a Tara Culp wrestler said, Scoff all you like, but there's a reason Dr. Oz's show is so popular. While doctors think laymen should unquestionably accept their authority, the general population is increasingly skeptical of doctors, big pharma, and government agencies. Adding nearly a third of Americans regularly seek out some form of alternative medicine, from fish oils to melatonin. Well, in spite of some of the quackery inherent in that which we reported on this program, we have to note that when Bill Gifford in the New York Times asks who can blame them, For all the medical profession's emphasis on evidence-based treatments, the truth is slipperier and more fluid than doctors admit. Millions of Americans are prescribed statins for high cholesterol despite a lack of scientific proof that the drugs actually prolong life. 
Some doctors are quick to prescribe meds. Others will take a more natural approach based on diets and exercise. Who's right? Who knows? Well, we've come to believe uh, in this program that exercise may be one of the few things in the world that's all it's cracked up to be. And your doctor reaching for the prescription pad to write you, uh, let's just say, Prozac, because you're feeling a little bit down, may not be such a good idea. As reported on Radio Parallax in the past, and we'll talk about again in the future, these drugs have rates of sexual dysfunction that range up to like 80%. And docs, I think in many cases, aren't even aware of this fact. I'm aware of it because I have a clinic that treats sexual dysfunction. So I see a lot of people coming in on these drugs, and in some cases, it's doing bad things for them. I do want to refer to a current issue, a special magazine currently on newsstands from Newsweek. It's titled The Science of Sex and has some interesting little tidbits in it. But as is too often the case, I'm not sure that I have time to do it justice. So maybe we will defer that to next week's program and instead talk about some other medically related things. A lot of folks are interested in extending life. Well, who isn't? Parade Magazine had a piece titled The Cheater's Guide to Living to 100 a couple weeks back. A lot of it's pretty basic common sense stuff. Actually, we're four, four pieces of advice. One, find your tribe. In other words, find a support group. The second piece of advice was eat smart, which is easier said than done. As is so often pointed out, people who eat seven or more portions of vegetables and fruits each day lower their risk of dying from cancer and cardiovascular disease. You also need to have a purpose in life, something that motivates you. And the fourth not very mysterious element is to keep active. Let's circle back to traditional medicine and the use of uh, pharmacologic agents. Piece from New Scientist magazine, October 4th, 2014. I've been hanging on to it for a while. Today's the day to talk about it. It was titled Elixir of Youth. It's already here. Article by Claire Wilson notes that life extension seems to be a side effect of several widely used drugs. Now, admittedly, this is an overhyped field, and a lot of people down in Silicon Valley are sort of faddishly getting into it, but uh, (laughs) I think it's worth exploring. And uh, I'll wager you also think that way, my dear listener. One of the drugs mentioned in the piece, there's a variant of the compound called rapamycin, first used to suppress the immune system in organ transplant recipients, later found to extend the lifespan of yeasts and worms. In 2009, mice were added to the list when the drug was found to lengthen the animals' lives up to 14%. Even though they were started on the drug at 600 days of age, the human equivalent of being about 60 That led to an explosion of research into other structurally similar compounds called rapalogs. Now the first evidence has emerged of one such analogous drug having an apparent anti-aging effect in humans. The drug is called everolimus. It's used to treat certain cancers, partially reversing the immune deterioration that normally occurs with age in people over 65. Now the idea of boosting your immune system, a real immunization boosting system is uh, kind of a holy grail in medicine. And something that, uh, unfortunately, in the grand scheme of things, has involved quite a bit of quackery. But perhaps we're on the verge of having some compounds that are the real deal. In this case, they did a trial of using placebo versus everolimus. And they found that participants' immune responses, as measured by levels of antibodies in their blood, increased more than 20%. That's at least in two out of the three vaccine strains that were tested. And rapalogs are not the only game in town. The most commonly used medicine for type 2 diabetes, metformin, also seems to extend the lifespan of many small animals, including mice, by about 5%. 
There have been no trials of metformin as a longevity drug in people, but a recent study hinted that it might have a similar effect. Examining uh, diabetics taking metformin, a study was conducted of people on, uh, on the drug who were diabetic and compared to closely matched people that were matched at least in terms of age and other health factors and tracked for five years. Turned out that diabetics taking metformin were not only less likely to die in that time than those on the other medicines, but they were also about 15% less likely to die than people without diabetes who took neither drug. Interesting stuff. We're going to keep our eye on this. All right, we've got about three minutes left. I just want to pull some miscellaneous items out here. Um, something from 2012 catches my eye, a piece by Chris Moody, who we had on the show many years ago talking about the GOP's war on science. Wrote about how Rand Paul was going to use his primetime speaking slot at the Republican National Convention to urge the party to be more open about scrutinizing military spending, a position that puts him, let's just say, in the minority within the GOP. Senator Rand Paul suggests we ought to audit the Pentagon, and we think he's right. As noted on this program in the past, the Pentagon loses something like $30 billion every year that it just, it just can't account for, just, just can't seem to find it in the, uh, in the accounting. That should get looked at, don't you think? You know, one thing that struck me about uh, George Bush the first, 41, the elder, was that when he ran for president back in 1988, somebody talked to one of his, his sister. She made the statement that, you know, I don't think George ever once argued with dad. Dad being Connecticut, Senator Prescott Bush, a real mover and shaker on Wall Street. His firm, by the way, got in a little bit of trouble during World War II uh, for running afoul of the Trading with the Enemy Act. But at any rate, I always thought, never had an argument with his old man? What a wimp. So let's backtrack into uh, the issue of raising kids. Research done some years back at the University of Virginia noted that parents who browbeat their kids into being obedient and agreeable may not be giving them the best preparation for the real world. The study at the UVA showed that encouraging teens to argue calmly and effectively against parental orders makes them much more likely to resist peer pressure. For this study, they observed more than 150 13-year-olds as they disputed issues like grades, chores, and friends with their mothers. When researchers checked back with the teens two and three years later, they found that those who had argued the longest and most convincingly, without yelling, whining, or throwing insults, were also 40% less likely to have accepted offers of drugs and alcohol than the teens who had caved quickly. So evidently, the key to having a constructive debate with your kids is to listen to them attentively and reward them when they make good points, even if you don't end up reaching mutual agreement. Study author Joseph Allen told NPR.org, think of those arguments not as a nuisance, but as a critical training ground for wise, independent decision-making. And in our final item of today's program, we would cite a piece from William Derezowitz in the New Republic from a few years back, asking you to not send your kids to the Ivy League. Said the author, elite universities like Harvard, Princeton, and Yale manufacture young people who are smart, talented, and driven, engineered to attain status and wealth. But they also produce graduates with little intellectual curiosity and virtually no sense of self. Admission standards are now so extreme that to get into an Ivy League college, kids have to compile records of astonishing achievement. That leaves them with a violent aversion to risk. And rather than use their college years to explore books, ideas, works of art, and thought, these super students are obsessed with getting straight A's in classes that will prepare them for getting to the top. Nearly a third of Ivy League graduates go into finance or consulting. But, said Derezowitz, the primary goal of higher education is or should be learning how to think. That's why you're better off sending your kids to a state university or small liberal arts college. 
Yes, nothing wrong with the likes of UC Davis and Chico State. Of course, in rebuttal, we have from the WashingtonPost.com a piece by Alexandra Petri saying, As a former Ivy Leaguer myself, I agree that these colleges have become elitist twit factories. But if we're serious about changing the system so that colleges focus on producing good human beings, not CEOs and corporate attorneys, we need to get the whole society to buy in. Otherwise, people's kids will get an Ivy League education, and all the employers that didn't read the New Republic will assume they're wonderful and keep hiring them. So please, be my guest. Stop sending your kids to Ivy League schools. You first. I'll watch and see what happens. And if you'd like to send in a rebuttal of that snotty attitude, feel free to do so. Drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com, and we'll see if we can't read it on the air. Otherwise, we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Will Durst, currently traveling over in Europe, but he'll be back. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. It's the time of the season When love runs high In this time, give it to me Let me try with pleasured hands To take you in the sun To promised lands To show you everyone